between last week and this week, or maybe you're planning on sleeping right now to catch up, but I'm going to need some help. Can anybody remember the gist of, of what did we talk about last Sunday in our sermon time? Does anybody remember? Your, your inner circle, we called it your SOI, your, your sphere of influence, and we brought Emmeline up here, and we had a tape measure. Does anybody remember what her SOI was? 126 square feet. And so all of you have this, this sphere in which you, those are the people who you can really reach out to. If you were a fisherman, you would call that your honey hole. Those are, that, that's the place where you can go. That's where you're the most productive, where you're most effective. It's where you can really shine your light. And the reason why we talked about that is because sometimes we get so caught up on what's way, way, way off that we forget that there's, a peop- there's people around us who need to be ministered to and who need to be loved and who need to receive mercy. And, and sometimes we get so caught up on what's going on on TV and radio and across the world and across the country that we forget that there are people right around us in whom we can influence. And we talked about that idea of this, this far-sightedness, right? That, that you look too far away and you need to focus in on, on a little bit closer, right? But if you go to the doctor, right, if you go to the eye doctor, what are, what are two different problems that you can have with your eyesight? You can be nearsighted or you can be farsighted, right? And so today, I want to kind of go just the opposite. I want to say don't look too far out, Because if you look too far out, you'll miss the people around you in the ways that God wants to use you. But also this morning, I want to go a little bit different. I want to say, don't don't focus too close. Because when we focus in too close, we really miss, again, what God has in store for us. Right? This is what our culture has taught us to do, is to look only at ourselves. We sometimes refer to that as navel-gazing. We just stare at our own belly buttons and wonder why anybody else would be any, anywhere as important as us. And, and social media has propped that up a little bit, hasn't it? Okay, for those of you who are much younger, okay, you have Be Real. What's Be Real, you younger kids? What's, what, what is that? What's that all about? I mean, you're smiling, Avery, so you know. Okay, so for those of you who don't have Be Real, it's B-E space R-E-A-L, Be Real. And what they're saying, I thought it was be, like, like a Be Real, like in a movie. But this is, no, you need to Be Real. And what happens, All whoever has this app... At the same time during the day, right, they send out and they say, this is your be real moment. So you pick up your phone, take a picture of your camera that's facing this way, then you take a picture of your ca- the camera that's facing that way, and then you show everybody, hey, this is what's really going on in my life right now. And what they're saying is, you know what, stop trying to take all these special pictures of, in these certain places. Like if it comes up, just be real. And I like that idea, except there's one problem. Once again, it just focuses in on ourselves. 
It's what am I doing? What's important for me? And for those of you who are a little bit older, you say, I don't have Be Real. I don't do that. But you probably have Facebook. And you might be that person that takes a picture of your food every time because you think everybody else in the world needs to know what you're eating at that moment. Right? Or where you're going or what you're doing. And this, this social media culture is all about me, 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 me. Well, before we go and, and kick... Uh, iPhone users and, and Apple and Microsoft and all these people who have who've really focused in on this idea of me, we need to remember that this has been around for a really long time. And the Bible refers to this concept of, of not focusing on God as simply an idol. Right now, I don't do this very often, but I, I do this morning, I want to define what idol is just so we'll know, one of the definitions is uh, of an idol. It's a person or thing that is greatly admired or loved or revered, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But the problem is, is that idols are sometimes tricky to identify. And the reason why they're so tricky to identify is because they're literally everywhere. An idol can be almost anything. In fact, a lot of times... An idol is so common, it's just, it's ubiquitous. It is, it is right there and you don't even notice it. You don't even notice that you're carrying an idol in your pocket. And you pull it out and smash it up against your face or you stare at it for hours. An idol might be in your front pocket when you pull it out and it jingles. And that leads you and gives you access to this vehicle that you absolutely love. An idol might be a job, it might be money, it can be just nearly anything. And so for just a few moments, I want to help us identify what an idol might be by asking just a few simple questions. If you don't know what idols you may be wrestling with and worshiping in your life, think about this question. What consumes my time? Think about that for a second. What consumes your time? Maybe your idol is rest. Maybe your idol is going everywhere. Maybe that's your idol. How about this second question? What monopolizes my thoughts? What are you thinking about all the time? What's most important to you? What, what's the thing that pre, pre, prevents you from being where you are at the moment? You do that, don't you? You have that moment where you're sitting there and standing there and somebody's in front of you and you have wandered off mentally to another place. You have something else that's going on. That likely is an idol. That's something that is taking you away from being present in that moment. Let me ask you this. What depletes my money? What do you spend your money on? If you were to go to look at your bank account, if you were to look at your, your credit card, what, what's being taken from that? Could that be your idol? Let me ask you this. What fills you with hope? What fills you with hope? For some of you, the thought of retiring 
brings you such great hope. Right? Maybe for some of you, getting out of high school and leaving mom and dad's house gives you hope. Hunter, you laughed really loud on that one. I mean, that was like, we all heard that one. I know where you are. I've been there. That, that promotion fills you with hope. The raise that you want to get, the new house or car that you want to buy, that gives you hope. Everything is going terrible, but this next president that's going to be elected, that gives you hope. I don't know what it is. But my thought is, if that's what you're putting your hope in, that's likely an idol that you're dealing with. And then how about this? What do I want more than anything else? What is your deepest desires? What is the thing that you want so much more? If somebody said, you can have just this one thing, what is it that you really, really want? If the answer to that question is not to be closer to Jesus, then I want to say that there's probably some idols in your life that are kicking God out of where he belongs in your life. Feeding our ego, staring at our navel, trying to improve our position, it's become a common theme from the very, very beginning. We'll quickly look over, hop through a few different verses before we land in Philippians. But think with me for just a second. In Genesis chapter 3, we have Satan comes and he's, he's attempting to trick and deceive Eve and Adam, right? And what does he use to do this? He uses a lie. Now, sometimes we get confused. And we think that the temptation is about fruit. The temptation is not about the fruit at all. Now it may have looked good and pleasing for the eye, but what really brought Eve close to that tree? This idea that she could be elevated to the status of God. Remember what he says? For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and what? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So from the very beginning, the, the, the first temptation, the first sin was, I am focused just on myself. This will make me greater, right? And this is going to happen again. Let's fast forward a few hundred years. We're now on a mountain, and God is speaking to his people who he has called. He says, okay, I have some rules for you to live by. The first rule is what? Don't have other gods before me. Anything that you place above God, ahead of God, is an idol. So not only is this the problem that causes Adam and Eve to sin from the very beginning, now God is warning his people, watch out, if you don't put me first, if you're only focused on yourself and what you want, this is going to be a big problem. And he says, number one, don't put any other gods before me. 
Don't elevate yourself. Now let's leapfrog again all through the Old Testament. We're going to land this time back in the desert once again. And Satan is up to his old tricks again. And listen to this. Well, well, let me just ask you this. Do you remember the temptations that Satan had for Jesus? Do you remember what the first one was? I'll give you a hint. He had just been fasting in the desert for 40 days. And so what do you think the temptation was? Do what? Food, right? That's what I've always thought. But when I started studying this, I realized that I don't think food was the real temptation. I, I, think, I think food was just, just the, the mode. That was, that what seemed in, was, that's what seemed enticing. But if you go back and you listen to what Satan says, there's something that I caught that I think you'll find interesting that some of you may have noticed as well. It says, the tempter, this is in Matthew 4, verse 3, it says, the tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's the real temptation? It's not the bread, what is it? It's to be like God. It's just like in the garden. It's the elevation of self once again. Sure, Jesus was hungry, and certainly he would have loved to have some bread. But the real temptation was not, you get to eat food, it is to prove who you are, if you are the Son of God. And in fact, when Satan tempts him again in a few verses, he's going to start with that same phrase again, if you are the Son of God. He's saying, elevate yourself, think about yourself. Throw yourself off this cliff and let the angels catch you. Because you're so important, that's what God would do. And Satan continues that temptation and that lie over and over again. And if Satan is going to attack Jesus and try to coerce him using his ego... Don't you think that he would do the exact same thing with us? So I promise we would get there. We are going there. Philippians chapter 2. There is a few verses down. We're going to get to just this most beautiful passage. It's known as the Christ hymn. And I just absolutely love it. If you want to challenge this week, I've got one for you. Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Start in verse 6. And memorize 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. They call it a hymn, and I say that there's two stanzas in it. The first stanza, 6 through 8, and the second one, 9, 10, and 11. It's just really beautiful. But listen to this. Before he gets to Jesus and what he did, listen to what Paul is telling the church in Philippi. And if you're in the youth group, pay special attention because this is what we're going through over the course of this summer is talking about uh, Philippians. Right, and we just opened that up. So, so somebody help me out. Um, uh, what do we know, especially if you're in high school or middle school? What do we know about Philippi? What do we know about the Philippians? Tell me something about it. Can anybody remember? I 
I'll hang on as long as I need to. What happened to Paul, wink, wink, Acts 16, while he was in Philippi? He gets thrown in jail. I mean, there, there is just all sorts of craziness and dysfunction going on. Paul wants to go down to Asia, remember guys? He wants to go down to Asia, and the Holy Spirit prevents him, which just baffles me. We talked about this in class last week downstairs. It baffles me that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, like, like he just wants to preach, and the Holy Spirit won't let him. And he can't go down to Asia. Ultimately, the, he gets, receives a vision from a man from Macedonia who says, hey, come on up here. They immediately, instead of going south, they go northwest. They end up in Philippi. And they end up in a place that's a Roman colony. And they go to the synagogue to worship. And guess what? There's not one probably because there weren't five Jews in that city to make up a synagogue, which was a requirement according to Levitical law. So instead they go down to the river, and who do they meet? They meet some women down there who are worshipers of God. Ultimately, Lydia and her family are baptized. Such a, a, a fascinating story. Paul's continuing to go throughout Philippi, but there's a problem. Somebody keeps following him. Does anybody remember who that was? We don't know her name, but we know she's a she because I just said her. There's a slave girl. And this slave girl has, uh, has within her, uh, she's, she's possessed. She has the spirit of prophecy within her, right? And so her, her masters love having her around because she's making them a bunch of money. But she's walking around and she's following Paul over and over again and she won't stop talking. And Paul does something that no man should ever do. He turned around and told the woman to stop talking. And boy, did that bite him. He cast out the demon. The slave owners drag Paul and Silas in and say, man, they're, they're corrupting our, our city. We've got to do something about him and all of a sudden, they get stripped down, they get beaten, they get flogged, they get thrown in jail, they're in the stocks late at night. And what do they do at midnight? They start singing. They sing and they pray. And God allows an earthquake to take place, the doors come open, a jailer realizes that, that he has lost his prisoners and he is about to die a painful death. He's going to be punished for letting his prisoners go. And right as he's about to take his own life, Paul and Silas say, don't do that, we're still here. And I love the question that he asks. Because he's on a different level altogether. He says, what do I need to do to be saved? And my thought is, dude, you're already saved. You're saved because these guys are here. But he wasn't talking about physical salvation. He was talking about spiritual salvation. And ultimately, this jailer and his family are baptized. Right? Now, Paul's going to leave, and about 10 years later, he's going to come back, or he's not going to come back, he's going to write a letter to them. Right? Now, here's the thing we need to know about Philippi. This is what I'm getting to that's really, really important, right? The church in Philippi is under a lot of duress. There's persecution. There is... Uh, 
Nero hasn't got there yet, but man, things are getting really bad. Rome does not like anybody upsetting the status quo. And this little sect of people called Christians who are talking about this carpenter who was executed by the Romans and he's now alive, he rose from the dead, is upsetting a lot of people. And Paul's going to sit down and he's going to write a letter. And what do you think he would write about? Listen to this, starting in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4 of Philippians 2, listen to this. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's going to say, I know times are tough, I know it's hard, I know you're hurting, I know you're being persecuted, I know you're being driven out of the marketplace, I know you're being made fun of, I know your kids are being ridiculed, I know you're being quarantined and pushed out and, and you're on the run, right? He says, but stop thinking about yourselves. He says, forget be real. Forget the Facebook post. Stop talking about how your life is affected and look to the interest of others. From the very beginning, Satan has said, you need to look after yourself. You can be more godlike. You should have other idols. You should be able to turn that stone into bread. And God says, stop being so concerned about what's best for you and what you want. It's why so many people have walked away from the faith. It's because somewhere they were convinced that God just wants their life to be better. And here's the facts. Our lives aren't that much better in a lot of ways. That's not a slight or a critique against God. Jesus himself says, it will be hard. People will hate you, but they hated me first. And you're going to be persecuted, but they persecuted me first. He says, stop thinking about how terrible your life is and how everything is wrong and just look to the interest of others. There's an old Indian proverb that I love so much. It says, help someone across the river and behold, you're on the other side as well. If we're looking to the interest of others and not focusing in on ourselves, we find purpose and meaning in our lives instead of being miserable and angry. So I want to close out with this. Paul goes on, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He didn't exalt himself. That's what this world says to do. Exalt yourself, lift yourself up, make sure everybody knows what you're doing and how important you are and what you're eating and where you live and what vacations you have and how big your house is. He says, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even what? Death on a cross. And so the whole, what, what Jesus does over and over again is he humbles, humbles, humbles himself. He lowers himself. He says, it's not about me, it's about God. It's not about me, it's about God. I'm not going to lift myself up. I'm going to humble myself. And that's what we're called to do. Paul says, be like Jesus. Lower yourself. You'll find purpose and meaning and you'll live a life worthy of the Son of God. Just lower yourself. Now, I love this. This is where we get to the second stanza, part two. I love this. Therefore, so he humbles himself, and what happens? Therefore, God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And so last week I said, don't look too far. And this week I say, don't look too close. Don't be so concerned about yourself that you can't see that God has something bigger that is just a little outside of you. And so this week, again, I just ask that you open your eyes. I know that you're hurting. I know there's heartache. I, I've, I've been so blessed to get to be here long enough that I've gotten to live life with so many of you. And I know a lot of your stories and your heartaches and your, your hurts. I've seen you bury your loved one. I've watched your kids go off. Some of you have, have faced divorce. Some of you have gone through job loss. And it's easy for us to sit and say, man, my life is terrible, and say, God, where are you? But this week, I want to ask that you can just look outside of yourself. That we not be so nearsighted that we don't recognize that just in our area are people who just, who just, they need Jesus. We all do. And so ignore the lies and temptations of Satan this week and I encourage you to seek Jesus to follow him and serve our Savior and I want to encourage you to do that this morning as we stand and sing. Vaughn.